G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Well, please pray with me now. Father in heaven, some of your uh, words that we read in the Bible, they seem um, old and, and distant to us, or they seem um, con- confusing at, at first glance or irrelevant, a, a list of names and we're not quite sure what to do with them. But Father, we recognise that God has spoken and that we have your words, your word to us in the very pages of our Bibles. So Father, by your spirit, would you please open our eyes to see what you would have us learn today, what you would have us hear May our ears be attentive, the ears of our very hearts, uh, that that we'd be moved to live as your people, that we'd be moved to bring glory to Jesus. And we pray it for his sake. Amen. So on that note, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and on and on and on it goes, right? Uh, Let me ask you, if you were writing the New Testament, so if you had the task, you know, the most amazing events in all of history have just unfolded before your very eyes, these incredible uh, things, you know, God's activity in the world, it has happened and you've got the task, humanly speaking, of writing it down, putting pen to paper. Let me ask you, what is your first chapter going to be? Tell me, how about your first sentence? Where are you going to begin? When you put pen to paper, what's the first thing that's going to come out of that pen? I'll tell you what mine wouldn't be. I wouldn't start with a genealogy. You know, if I'm trying to grip my audience, that isn't how I'm going to begin. Let me tell you my thinking here. It seems to me, dear brothers and sisters, that our relationship with genealogies is something like our relationship to home movies, uh, like as in like family home videos of children and of pets, of first steps, perhaps uh, the action footage of family meals and whatnot. On two fronts, actually, genealogies and home movies, two, two traits. Uh, firstly, no one takes an interest in anyone's but their own. Am I right? I don't care. Please don't show me your family you know, Christmas dinner video from two years ago. I can barely watch my own. Second, even if it is your own, interest seems to be proportional to age. That is, until you hit, well, I'm not sure how to be subtle here, but until uh, it seems proportional to the number of grey hairs on your head, your interest in these things, or the, the centimetres of recession of your hairline. Do you see what I mean? I'm skating on thin ice here, folks. All I'm saying is, book one, paragraph one, chapter one, here we go, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon. And yet... See, I may be bemoaning it, uh, hamming it up a little, the tiresomeness of ancestry, but I actually reckon there is something that sets this one apart and that's what I want us to unlock today. Think about Matthew. Matthew is introducing the Jesus who he believes to be the main event. Matthew reckons Jesus is the real deal, like the biggest deal ever in history. You cannot possibly overstate how important Jesus was in Matthew's mind and in Matthew's heart and in Matthew's life and what a big deal Matthew wants 
us to make of Jesus in our mind and our heart and our life. And here is Matthew's introduction. So today, here's my aim. I want us to see Jesus as the real deal and the big deal in our lives. And I want us to sort of plug into Matthew's way of helping us do that. I think this genealogy helps us with that. I want us to see ourselves and our lives and our passions, our priorities, our troubles as well, differently, precisely because we've come to see Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, even from this genealogy, as the real deal, the authentic article, the big deal in our lives. So let me build my case in three points. Three points, I'm just going to dive straight into them. Um, Here's a view of Jesus that that has got to change our lives Firstly, because Jesus is what this entire world is about. Jesus is what this entire world is about, has always been about, will always be about. I think that's one of the things that this genealogy um, shows us. Now, I don't want to read through the whole thing again, though, (laughs) right from the start. Um, But can we somehow hold in our minds these two things as as we encounter these names? These two things. Firstly, Every single name here represents an actual person, like you're an actual person, I'm an actual person, we see one another so we know we're actual. Every single one of these names represents an actual, real-life person uh, and yet, secondly, that person is dead and gone and is history by the time Matthew writes. You see, the gravity but the brevity as well. A real person but they are gone a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. Well, we know some of those names. We know the ones that I just read, but then on it goes. Judah, then Perez, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and uh, verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. See, every one of them was a real-life person. And like us, I think if we, if we knew a little bit more of the stories, we could appreciate them a little bit more, uh, we'd probably, as in, it could recall them, uh, the details of Abraham's life, if we had more affection for Isaac, more uh, of our hearts was invested with Jacob, we'd come to see every single one of them. On their way through, they counted their life the most important life that had ever come on the planet, like we tend to do. But get this, what's Matthew, what's Matthew saying overall when he sums up in verse 17? What's he saying? Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. What's Matthew trying to say? Isn't he saying, look, Jesus is what history is all about? Jesus is what history has always been all about. You structure it as it's leading these four teens up to Jesus. He's the main deal. He's the real deal. He's the big deal. In a very real way, every single generation from and since is either a step toward Jesus or a step out from Jesus. He is the real deal. I think it's why he starts with Abraham as well, actually. Uh, the father of God's promises. I think it's why he traces some genealogies, but not others. He tells us about Isaac, but not Ishmael. 
He tells us about Jacob, but not Esau. He's following the promises of God. God's big plan in the world centers on Jesus. You want to know your place in human history? Then wrap your head around Jesus because he's already come. And your life either bears witness to that fact that Jesus is the biggest thing in history ever or you try to make out that you're the biggest thing in history ever. Matthew's setting us up to see Jesus at the heart of history. You might recall how C.S. Lewis put it. I I quoted it before. It's kind of lengthy, but I'd like to share it with you again. It's such a good one. C.S. Lewis, he said, perhaps a modern person can understand the Christian idea, you know, about history and all of this. Can understand the Christian idea best if he takes it in connection with evolution. Everyone knows about evolution, though, of course, some educated people disbelieve it. Everyone has been told that man has evolved from lower types of life. Consequently, people often wonder, what's the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? And imaginative writers try sometimes to picture this next step, the Superman, as they call him. But they usually only succeed in picturing someone a good deal nastier than man as we know him, and then trying to make up for that by sticking on extra legs and arms. But supposing the next step was to be something even more different from the earlier steps than they ever dreamed of. And is it not very likely it would be? Thousands of centuries ago, huge, very heavily armoured creatures were evolved. Dinosaurs. If anyone had at that time watched the course of evolution, he would probably have expected that it was going to go on to heavier and heavier armour. But he would have been wrong. The future had a card up its sleeve, which nothing at that time would have led him to expect. It was going to spring on him little, naked, unarmoured animals which had better brains. And with those brains, they were going to master the whole planet. Now, if you care to talk in these terms, the Christian view is precisely that the next step has already appeared. And it is really new. It is not a change from brainy men to brainier men. It is a change that goes off in a totally different direction. A change from being creatures of God to being sons of God. And the first instance appeared in Palestine 2,000 years ago. In a sense, the change isn't evolution at all because it's not something arising out of a natural process of events, but something coming into nature from the outside. I've called Christ the first instance of the new man. But of course, he's so much more than that. He's not merely a new man, one specimen of the species, but the new man. He is the origin and centre and life of all new men and women. Do you see? The the centre of history, it's already happened. The next step, it's already happened. And I'm telling you about it. Every generation right through history... What were they heading for? Jesus. And I'm here to tell you about it. I'm going to write his story and this is where I'm going to begin. Do you see where your life fits in? You're either one generation, a real life, sure, but leading up to Jesus, or you're one generation uh, heading out from his time. So I start with a kind of grand point, I guess, about all of history and your life. But before we get to baby Jesus lying in a manger, before Matthew will tell that story, we start with this. Jesus is the biggest thing in our lives. He is the origin. He is the centre. He is the life of every Christian. 
you are not what this world is all about. That's what Matthew's saying. I am not what this world is all about. Jesus is what this world is all about. Jesus is what my life is about. Jesus is what my kid's life is about. Jesus is what my parents' life is about. Jesus is what, God willing, my grandkids' life will be about. Jesus is what my grandparents' life will be about. Do you see? Jesus is what every generation is about, whether or not we see it. So, big, grand, vast point to begin. More briefly now, Jesus and us. Secondly, um, I've got to tell you, so far, we've, we've touched on it a few times. Alex has read it. I've read a few of the verses that I'm going to refer to. There's this little detail um, tucked in there that just doesn't... I don't think it resonates with me in the same way that I think it resonated with Matthew, meant so much to Matthew. And I suspect you're probably more like me than Matthew in this particular instance. See if you can spot it. It's in verse 1. In verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... It's this kingly language. Obed, verse 6, I'm in uh, verse 6 now, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Why did he bother putting that little detail in there, King? Actually, uh, the next 14 uh, names from David onwards, they are all kings. Um, So we just get to the first king, David, and then what have we got? Solomon, uh, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jeconiah, all kings most of them crooks, but kings nonetheless. We're reading a list of kings and verse 17, again, the emphasis hinges on David. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from, here it is again, the exile to the Christ. Here's my trouble. See, delicate little child of the 21st century that I am, king doesn't mean a whole lot to me. You know, it doesn't kind of get my heart racing. I don't go, king, awesome, that is exactly what I've been looking for for my entire life. Do you know what, can you relate to a little bit of what I mean? I mean, I don't even particularly, I mean, this is, you know, 21st century Australia indeed, I don't even particularly admire my prime minister. He's not even a king, you know what I mean? Yes, I know that we have a queen. But you see the disconnection that I'm, I'm feeling here. King sounds foreign, like from some other country foreign to democracy, foreign perhaps to freedom. King sounds dated, like from another era, a less enlightened, more oppressive perhaps era. But those resonances, they can't be what Matthew's driving at, can they? Why does he go to the trouble of banging on about King and David and Christ? Why does he emphasise that so much? What's the big deal with a king? Well, if that's you, let let me give you two little helps here. Uh, Number one, (laughs) no one wants a lame king. Matthew doesn't want a lame king. He doesn't want my conception, my 21st conception of an outdated, irrelevant, perhaps oppressive king. No, no, No one's aspiring for that. No, and even good, faithful, Bible believing Israelites, right down the years, they weren't looking for a king just like the other countries. They weren't looking for a king just because it was the coolest political thing that they'd come up with yet because they hadn't figured out democracy or something. No, no, no. Yeah, the unfaithful Israelites, yeah, sure, they wanted a king just like the nations. But no, no, the Bible-believing, trusting, faithful Israelites. For them, Israel's king was supposed to be almost like God in their midst. That was what it was to have a king 
I will save my flock. This is, uh, this is God speaking, Ezekiel 34. Listen to the way he speaks of his concern for his people. I will save my flock and they'll no longer be plundered. I'll judge between one sheep and another. I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, this is prophecy, so David's an emblem for this future king. I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. What I'm saying is, we don't want some lame king. They didn't want some lame king. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. Having a king was almost like having God in their midst for the faithful Israelites. Second thing about kings, so we need to set our expectations right. Second thing about kings, we need to realise that when Matthew talks about kings, kings don't have voters. Kings have subjects. So when Matthew says the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to the Christ. He isn't asking for your vote, ladies and gentlemen. He's not telling you to vote for Jesus. He's demanding your life and saying, I've met the man who demands it. Which if he's God and he's good, that's fine. In fact, it's right, it's proper. But the Christmas story begins with no soppy, sentimental nonsense, does it? It begins with a demand for your life from the king of the universe. Do you remember how um, Abraham Kuyper put it? I've, I mention it occasionally. There is not a square inch. There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's the king who is God amongst us, mine. So your finances, mine, says Jesus. Your sex life, mine, says Jesus. Your possessions, mine. Your leisure time, mine. Your holiday decisions, mine. What you're doing at 2pm on Christmas afternoon, mine. How you're behaving at 11pm on New Year's Eve, mine. You see, he is God among us. He is king over our lives. He doesn't ask for voters. He is demanding allegiance. For what it's worth, I mean, that makes it sound very dire, doesn't it? (laughs) For what it's worth, when Jesus has got your heart, to put it positively, you are living connected with God in the way that God intends with him over your life in exactly the order that we're supposed to, with the hope, with the promises of God's blessings and plans as the wind at your back. And it doesn't mean life will work out rosy all the time, but it does mean you've got God at the centre of your life. That is a... He is a good king. He is a boss and I'm a subject, but he is a good boss. Lastly, finally, Matthew's Christmas story, so it's about the whole world, right? The grand sweep of history. It's about Jesus and who he is with respect to us, to you. But we've got to see that Matthew's Christmas story is about a real Jesus who is the real deal for the real world. The real world. He's not a plastic Jesus for a put-on world. Here's the thing, folks. I, I make this comment, especially for you, if come Christmas time, maybe you come along to church, 
Uh, you, you sing the songs, uh, you know, you, you love the carols, uh, you see the, the sparkling lights in other people's homes or perhaps your own, you follow the sermons and you just find yourself thinking, yeah, that, that's, that's good but it, it, it can't be for me. It, it just doesn't work for my life. It's, it's good for those, those religious-y people, frankly, whose lives have got it a little bit more together but it just doesn't kind of work out for me. My life is a little bit too complex for, you know, baby Jesus, meek and mild and all that kind of thing. My life just didn't work out the way that this, you know, venerable list of saints' lives worked out. This genealogy, what I'm saying is this genealogy may not sound to you like it is a list of anyone uh, and everyone. Where is the real world in this list? Aren't these venerable saints? Aren't these heroes of the faith? Aren't these supermen? Aren't these saints? Aren't these somebodies? It doesn't sound very much like me, like anybody's. It doesn't sound very much like it's for everyone. Well, you might be surprised and I just want to draw out a couple of the details because I think this, this list shows that Jesus is for everyone and for anyone and absolutely for you. Uh, So come with me. The the woman in verse 3, for example, let's have a look at the woman in verse 3. Tamar, not a Jew, not one of God's people in in that sense. Uh, Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron and so on. Why has Matthew included Tamar? She wasn't a Jew, firstly, but second, her presence here reminds us that it's really her husband we ought to be taking a closer look at because he died, her first husband, but the children that she bore in this list, she bore for her father-in-law, that's Judah. Long story, including mistaking her for a prostitute, Judah was a sinful blockhead, to put it bluntly, and the story is pretty rough. Down in verse 5 then, Rahab, Verse 5, Salmon, uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Uh, You might remember her from the Battle of Jericho. There was no mistaking anything there. That was actually her trade. Uh, Another Gentile, a Canaanite from Jericho. Again, verse 5, Boaz, the father... See, why has Matthew decided to include these people in this list? Boaz, the father of... Sorry, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You'll remember she was a Moabitess. She wasn't from among God's people. Keep going. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. Ah, David noble King David, then why does Matthew include this detail? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, had been. If Matthew was trying to paint a picture of all the somebodies, all the venerable saints, all the respectable people, if Matthew was trying to say, Jesus is only for respectable people, and if you're not, then you don't have a place here, he wouldn't have included this one. He wouldn't have bothered to mention had been Uriah's wife. Had been until David spied her naked, took her to sleep with him, got her pregnant, arranged Uriah's death because, you know, better better than being found out. He tried to cover it up and failed, tried to cover it up again and failed again. Just kill him and then I'll have her for myself and nobody will ever be the wiser. You know who's the wiser, David? We are the wiser. All of history is the wiser. Why do you have a bunch of Gentiles in your noble list, non-Jews? Why do you have a bunch of absolute crooks like Judah and like David? Don't get me started on most of those kings. It's because of this. Leon Leon Morris, he puts it this way, a late Australian preacher, 
He says, Matthew is surely saying that the gospel is for all people, not just Jews, and that the gospel is for sinners. It is a sinful world and Matthew is writing about grace. Now, if this is your situation, you don't feel like a somebody, you can't read yourself into this story, I want you to hear this loud and clear. Matthew is surely saying that the gospel is for all people, that the gospel is for sinners. And I want you to hear loud and clear, come. Come all you vagabonds, come all you don't belongs, winners and losers come people like me. Come all you travellers tired from the journey, come wait a while, stay a while, welcomed you'll be. Jesus is the real deal. The real deal of history, the big deal of history. He doesn't want your vote, he demands your life and he's for everyone. Here's the real deal. Are you ready for Matthew's Christmas story now from verse 18 and following? Jesus came from a bunch of nobodies who'd done nothing to be proud of, to be our everything for everyone, forever. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, in the bustle of a month like December... Gosh, it's hard to to stop and reflect that history isn't about us. And we pray, Father, would you please impress upon us this week that while our lives are significant and what we do matters before you, that you care, that you notice, that you're with us, that nevertheless, history is about Jesus. And we pray, Father, would you give us strength by your Spirit, please, to bear that out in our lives, even in the, the conversations that we have today, the people that we speak with, the things that we say, the way that we handle disappointments, frustrations, lateness, loneliness in the days and weeks ahead. Lord God, may we point to Jesus, the heart of history and the Lord of our lives. We pray for his sake. Amen.